<laughs> what I wanted to talk about tonight a little bit, and just throw it open to discussion, was something we mentioned last week to recap for those of you who are here. A couple of weeks ago, I was at this weekend conference in Washington. It was just a group of people, a lot of whom have been at the San Domingo for a long time. Talked mostly about issues around spiritual groups and how they go off and the ways that they go awry. About Buddhism and psychotherapy and differences and similarities. And then at the very end, I kind of threw in just the whole the perspective of what an awareness of the different realms of existence how that affected one's practice, namely the lower realms. <laughs> you know, and this, this whole feeling of practicing with a sense of spiritual urgency. It didn't go over big. <laughs> you know, I put this out and basically the reaction from almost everybody who said anything, except for one Tibetan membership. <laughs> we, were, we were allies. <laughs> but everybody else so basically didn't like hearing it and didn't like what they perceived as the idea of practicing from a place of fear. You know, that, that didn't seem very wholesome to them and so they thought it was not a skillful, not a skillful thing to bring up. So that just prompted some thought on my part in the sense of It's certainly in the teachings. So that's, that's one thing. Then I thought, if it's true, and that we may have our own viewpoint about it, but if for the moment we assume it's true, what do we do with it? Do we ignore it because we're reacting to it in a certain way? You know, we don't see, we don't like the reaction in the moment. Or do we somehow come to a different kind of understanding? And so that prompted a little bit of investigation into what we call fear. Because that's what people's, that was the button that was pressed. People didn't like having to practice out of fear. And I started reflecting upon the different parts, especially in the Abhidhamma, what the different mental qualities were which might unknowingly be grouped together in English under the word fear, but actually are not what we normally mean by fear. And so, you know, getting all confused. In other words, I was looking, I was really looking to see if there's a state of mind which could incorporate the understanding of the realms and consequences. If there were some states of mind that could incorporate that and integrate it, but it actually be a positive state rather than a negative state. And what I came up with were three kinds of two particular mental factors. That's what I was looking at the there were two particular mental factors and some other state which seems to me 
I don't know if it's a particular mental factor or not, but it's very common sense. The two mental factors are ones that the Buddha called the light of the world. Because, but no, not the light of the world, the protectors of the world. Because they actually protect ourselves and others. And the two states of mind, the first one is conscience, the quality of mind which we call in English conscience. And the second one is called shame. And this is what these terms, you know, in Abhidhamma things, things are defined very specifically, and sometimes the English equivalent, it, take, it needs care to define accurately because we have so many different connotations. I think what's meant by conscience is something weird, the common meaning of that word, that is coming out of a respect for ourselves. And so that when we know that something is unwholesome, is an unskillful act, there's a sense of conscience in us that acts as a prevention or protection from doing it. And I don't know whether, you probably have, because it's quite common, but it's been very strong in my experience at times when you're meditating and a past unwholesome action comes to mind. I, at times when the mind is really concentrated and that comes up, there is a very strong sense in my mind of remorse about having do it, doing, having done it. And I think that comes out of this quality of mind, you know, of conscience, and out of a regard or, or a self-respect of when, when we see it, we don't want to do those kinds of actions. Because that's, that's one quality. We might go into discuss what that is in more detail. What's meant by shame is really an interesting one because it is interesting. Was that that window? Did you see it? Yeah. Right. No, it wasn't was opening. Like it was. Yeah, it was right. opening. It felt like a lightning strike. Yeah, yeah. It's getting close. Getting close. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it could be closer. <laughs> this quality of shame is interesting to me because it touches on something which I don't think we value very much. Or, I don't know, it's a funny, it's a funny attitude that I think we have with respect to it, which is out of respect for others, refraining from unskillful actions. That is, out of consideration for what, how others might hold us. And my sense is, and this may be wrong, but generally we don't value that. There's a sense that, well, it doesn't matter if I know what I'm doing is right or wrong. That, that there's almost a value placed on not valuing what other people think of us. 
And I don't know if this is true or not. This is just an impression I have in, in our culture that there's so much emphasis on self, on independence. And anyway, this quality of shame has to do really is this action going? How will how will this be viewed by wise people? And there have been times. There have been many times in my experience when I might be inclined to do something. And often I'll do it. Sometimes I'll just ask myself, well, what would the Buddha think of this? Well, would I feel comfortable doing this in front of the Buddha? Or anybody, any wise woman or wise man. And I found that it provides a really useful reference point. Because so often we get fooled by the mind. We rationalize, you know, in a million subtle ways, different kinds of actions. And so I found it really a useful quality just to, to create a reference point outside of the ego. I mean, it's still within the mind because we're, we're projecting some image of a wise person. But it's outside of that ego structure. I think this is what this quality of shame is about. And it's actually a positive, it's not a negative quality. So one is, one protection is this quality of conscience. One is this quality of shame. The third the third possibility I saw for acting or not acting and here's where the we might use the word fear but I would like to use it suspending one's the usual connotation of it and it really has to do with fear of consequences Another way to view it would be wisdom of consequences. Just as a simple example, you know, we learn very young not to put our hands in fire. Because we know if we do that, it's going to cause suffering. Now, I don't know whether you would call that, I mean, one could call that wisdom, well, this fear of fire. But it's not fear in not fear with a sense of aversion towards it. It's, fe it's fear in the sense of understanding that some things create suffering and one, if one doesn't want to suffer, one doesn't do those things. To me, that's a really, a very common sense wisdom. And when I was reflecting upon how to integrate an understanding of all idea of the different realms, it was no different to me than that. And if we see that certain actions lead to certain results, and those results are suffering, well then there's a, what, I don't know the right word exactly, there's a fear of doing it, or a wisdom of you know, seeing that it doesn't, it doesn't bring us what we want. But that it's actually quite an important reflection in our lives if we're interested in creating creating conditions of happiness for ourselves. 
So these are the, these these were the qualities in the mind that I saw could operate in an inner wise way. Here we have my thoughts about this conscience of shame. That distinction, which I just was just clarified in Sudimago, was that sense of out of respect for oneself and out of respect for others, you know, differentiating those two. And I think that was quite an interesting differentiation. Mostly, the, in terms of the definition, the reference point outside of oneself is generally in terms of what the wise, how the wise would be, which I think is creates a difference, almost in terms of motivation behind the concern.
do you think it's necessary that we each experience every kind of painful consequence? No, I'm, I'm just saying that I think those two situations are quite different. Yeah, I know, but I guess what I'm asking is, if it is different. What I'm wondering is whether the second situation could ever be done in a wholesome way so that we don't have to necessarily experience the painful result for everything. If, um, what I'm wondering, is there a wholesome way where somebody could impart some wisdom and we either accept it or we don't accept it, but and it not come from a place of negative fear? But you're saying that if if you experienced some part, a, a big part, a group of teachings, right? Then then you could hear some of the others without the fear.
Yeah. <laughs> That's a telling, <laughs> telling observation. I agree with you <laughs> that we don't have a lot of models, although there are probably some. But I wonder if, even without models, this people still have or still have a strong internalized model, which we may or may not be encouraged to draw upon. Sorry, that actually is. Yeah. 
So I, I don't think it's sort of universally, but in any one individual. I mean, that we all bring something, and it's either a strong or some sort of... But I want, I mean, I... It seems important to me that, that, that there actually is a, an educational input Not in a moralistic way, but really that I think it is a process of, of education to some large extent. If not, if not totally. Well, I think it's about the sangha. The sangha supports that, mm -hmm. nurtures it, so it develops and becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. And we can see more clearly how different actions affect us and might want to direct our lives. Okay, so I guess what what's of what's of interest to me anyway is the, what are the mind states motivating that interest? And that's kind of what I So where does it, would you rather know that certain actions are set to lead to certain notes? I would definitely know. <laughs> Out of an interest of avoiding This is all really interesting, and it's a lot of what we just began to discuss at the moment. As far as I can tell, as I look at myself or I observe other people, you know, other of the teachers who talk about, who will even talk about it, it really feels to be coming from a place of compassion. You know, and I agree with you that presentation is really important. 
if there's yeah and some people want to know and some people didn't know They were really out of that sort of yeah. I, I brought up sort of the teachings about the different realms of existence, including the lower realms of suffering, and that that had consequences. My understanding of that had consequences for how I lived my life. The rea- there was a strong reaction to that because people felt that that was living out of fear. I felt that that was a limited understanding of how one could hold it. That it didn't have to be what we normally call fear, that there could be, that it could really be a wisdom you know, that held that understanding of lower realms and different actions leading there. And you know, it was just as Dennis said, wanting to know, you know what are the actions which are going to end up suffering becoming a motivation to refrain from those actions. Because I've seen, and you know, we all have, that the force of desire is so strong in it that it just, it rationalizes it. It gives us reason <laughs> for doing all kinds of things. And you see, so It would be an interesting question to, see, you know, when we look around the world and see all the terrible things that are being done. How it would, how many are being done maliciously, in the sense of people really knowing they're doing something and still doing it anyway, and people who have justified it, you know, or rationalized in some way that it's good to do. I've just, I've seen that in myself a lot. Yeah, if there's something I want to do, and these other factors are not strong in the moment, you know, the conscience or the shame or the, the fear of consequences, I'll find a million reasons why it's good to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the two are probably connected. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. I, I, I'm sorry I didn't think of it at the meeting, <laughs> but afterwards in reflecting, I, re- I felt actually that people's reactions were coming out of fear. That it was... <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't think of it then. <laughs> so they were feeling threatened. That in reflection and as I was thinking back upon the energy of the reaction, it was very much there. You know, that somehow it was just touched something that 
couldn't be accepted. I think that's, that's a lot connected with what you were saying before and really the whole quality of the mind's faith. And people with strong faith, for whatever reason, whether it's blind faith or faith because of a certain part of experience, find it easier to accept people with weak faith that they can't. It, it was the it was all the conditioning about all those hellfire sermons, and that people didn't want they want anything to do with it. But that may be a swing to the other extreme, you know, just a, a reactive swing. And my sense was that there's actually some place in the middle. Yeah, no, but I think... But for, me, for me, I'm much more in contact with how my life, how I'm, I'm falling into the holes as I walk down the street, as I am climbing into the, the higher realms that seem to be so transitory. So more or less, how do you uproot the, the, cause, the, root, the, the causes of suffering? Because no matter how high I get, I always come back down. So it seems like pain is, is a better... Me away. me away. I mean, you could take it not, if you think not of future lives in different realms, but of this life. People generally are in some level of suffering which they're experiencing, and the happiness or the peace that they're looking for is something to be experienced. And so it's more tangible because it's actually what people are experiencing now. I mean, just what Dennis was saying. And, and so the next life scenario is just an extrapolation of, of what's happening in this life. Well, I mean, that's really, that's really interesting, though, because I didn't know what that was like. Because when Dennis said, the motivation is something else, the motivation is the motivation. I mean, you know, my desire to know about 
Well, we probably all bring quite different motivations to practice, and then kind of different things. It's a real <laughs> suffering. <laughs> I wonder if the, I wonder if there's a wisdom in actually doing both, you know, and just so that there's a balance, which I think, I mean, in some way, I see what we do here as way over on the positive side. You know, that's, I mean, we have in, in the retreat. We just have touching glances. I mean, barely mentioned. You know, it's see a real wholesome way of, do, uh, of doing it, but it, I think that, it, that for some people it is true. Well, the question is, is real fear or You don't know that, you don't know the motivation between the gas. So much of the time we're given these stories and we don't know the Do we really have to we really have to have that intensity of suffering in order to learn? Or in order to be motivated from a wholesome place? Isn't there some isn't there some other way our minds can hold it without actually dropping in? <laughs> I think in in defense of of working it's kinda like Perhaps there's like the two angles are, you know, do we, do we reflect on quality, you know, higher states, 
I was kind of felt like I was kind of playing like working with the suffering. And it's in defense of the of working with the suffering is that if you can actually see how it is these hell states are present with us right now and not kind of have the aversion where you subtly push them away kind of see that yes indeed these things do exist and on some I can feel them on some level but why why do I have to burn you know burn it any longer than necessary that's kind of presenting the case for just not not getting totally engrossed in them but actually allowing them to be seen and not pushed away so that you can use them Includes It's just an inter- there's something interesting going on there, which I don't quite get. Do we, it's good, would you say that we have evolved from that? He says it's a two-way street. <laughs> <laughs> we go up, we go down. Well, we go so, that, so that in most cases we probably have experienced it. Oh. Yeah. Also, so the only problem is... We've forgotten. <laughs> 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 All we have to do is be able to... Give us the, uh, the hardcore rap on the 
If you want to read about the rooms, that we just somebody sent uh, sent us a book. It's a translation of a, a work by a 14th century Thai prince on the different notes. It's a, quite a classical presentation of description. It's in terms of, of what they're actually like, but it's really in terms of what actions. really has to do with the ten wholesome and ten There are three actions of body which are killing and stealing. First, before, before I know, karma, it, it's not so simple. It doesn't mean that the necessary consequence of any one of these acts is any particular thing. There are only five actions which have a, a necessary consequence. And these, are, these are the five bad ones, which are <laughs> wounding a Buddha, <laughs> killing a fully enlightened being, killing your mother or father, and creating a schism. Well, I mean, they refer to some kind of historical event that happened in the time of the Buddha. Um, I, I don't know the exact, where they just, there were some ones who just tried to create a split, but I don't know, I don't really know what that And again, this time, just before that, that these acts always lead to in the, in the immediate next With any other act, even of killing or stealing or whatever, there's not a necessary. They have the potential to live, but there's not a necessary. So it's killing and stealing, it's sexual misconduct, which. Yeah. yeah, most of them have to do it. It's just another expression of these things. Uh, so there are three of the body, there are four of speech, which is lying, slander, I'm not sure of this, but actually, I think this is a technical point of 
I'm not sure it's better. One of them might, might actually be wrong there. In terms of the strong, the strong view of self, or the, the denial of the, the not understanding of the world going. And my sense is not so much. And again, this is my interpretation. That it's not so much those mind states themselves, but but they actually are the foundation for doing all the impulse and actions. You know, when we think there's no consequences, and when there's that strong view of self or of ego, so it leads on to all the others. So those are the and then there are, there are the ten wholesome ones, and the ten wholesome actions which lead to positive, immediate positive. That's what, I mean, my, my reading of the teachings, and I, what I get is not a, a message of fear, but a real message of compassion, you know, of the Buddha really wanting to write people, because of what he saw, you know, and of the dangers of samsara. And so, Really go from bad to worse, or are they just different rotten things can happen? <laughs> 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 no, I was a fire and brimstone last line. Hungry ghosts. That's the That's one of the lower realms, is the animal realm. Then there's the realm of beings called hungry ghosts. It's not actually a hell realm. But it's a realm of tremendous deprivation. Just extreme deprivation. So you're not in a human form? You're not in a human form. But there is a physical form. Are of, of 
I'm so paranoid about talking about this stuff. No, I've only heard of those first three. I've heard of the actual four. Yeah. Oh. I've never heard of the other Oh, Well, you should really read this book for the gory descriptions, but the hell rounds are the ones of and the descriptions of the kind of thing. It's intense. It's really intense. Can you give and the thing that got me the most in this, which really motivated me, was when Meninja was saying that in Helen Zimmer's face. So I thought, not, I mean, there's unremitting pain, and no. So I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> we better stop working hard here. So do you have a body to experience pain? Yeah. You do have a Just like in the heaven rounds, but it's like it's a but it's a body. How could you? Well, it's interesting because when you have pain, you, you have to be very concentrated. I mean, you can't, otherwise, you know, how can you be totally aware of anything all the time? Well, it's not just one. It's like being the experience of it. Because even when you have pain when you're sitting, you can't. All the time, the mind wanders off. And yeah, because it's not. <laughs> so fair. Not really. <laughs> it's really interesting to me because when I, the last time I was in Burma, I was doing meditations on the four Brahma Viharas. And so I did the math and I did the compassion. And the way to teach compassion, the way you start, is to pick somebody. He's in just a miserable condition. You know, and the way they describe it in the text, we don't really come into contact with people like that. People with no arms and no legs and you know, constant, the lowest. And you imagine them and you wish them to be free of suffering. Because, and it really evokes compassion most easily. But I didn't know anyone. And so the person I started with was somebody who's actually quite affluent. Is Whose business is in slaughtering animals. You know, and just when I would think of him, given my belief system, and that he doesn't know, you know, and I didn't see any way. I mean, it's just, he, you know, in that, in his culture, there's nothing wrong with it. And it just invoked a tremendous amount of compassion. And I could imagine that's how they do Sort beings which just totally have ignorance of consequences of acts, doing things which, which just lead us. So, and there's so much about Buddhism that feels different 
So the it, difference, it's hard, it's hard to yeah. the difference is, and I think it's a really crucial one, and maybe this is part of that whole question of presentation, is that it's not a judgment. It's not presented as a judgment. You do this, and somebody's going to judge you as being bad. And you're going to suffer because of that. Really what it is, is the laying out of the law of things, the law of nature. And so the whole attitude of receiving it, I think, can be quite different. But it's not always, that difference is not always perceived. So people do mix up. I mean, what basically, you put your hand in fire, it burns. And so, so the Buddha is saying, well, you do this, this is what's going to happen. But it, not, not as a judgment. <laughs> this is a... So, you said there were certain things that, certain actions that you know, one might do, and they, might, and they wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. land you in the lower mm -hmm. realms. And I'm wondering what are the factors that will, is it spelled out in the text, the factors that will prevent right. that? And, you know, should you, are there specifics like you should develop this, this, or is it like the last thing in the mind right. when you die, or? There, it is laid out in different ways. Um, the, the Buddha, they get the image of how, how Karma works in terms of, it's a very nice image. first one out of the bone is going to be the strongest one. So that's like the heavy karma, the weighty karma, good or bad. If one has a tumor of evil, either of that, that's going to be the presence of anything else. If there's no weighty karma, what's good weighty karma? No or bad weighty karma? The jhanas. Concentration. Yeah, the absorption states. Or any of the stages of mind. So that takes precedence. If there's no way to come, then it's habitual karma, which one has just practiced over and over, and it's like the cow. The usual goes up first. If there's not one that is habitual, then it's the one nearest the door, which means just what's performed in the last moments. And that's what happens. If there's no one near the door, then it's just random. Mm -hmm. you know, it could be from any, from this life. And so there is, there is a sequence. One of the other things that's operative in, in karma is that 
One is that one can get out of the reach of enough. For example, if we've done unwholesome things, and then for some reason, following this disorder of precedence, you know, we were born in a higher realm, the unwholesome karma can't reach there for as long as one is in that realm. And there's one story of somebody who had done you know, really bad things. He happened to be reborn because he had remembered to he remembered something at the time of his death. He looked back, he says, the day you have that ability. He his life, he saw the combo waiting, waiting, he practiced, and he achieved the first day of enlightenment. And so from that point, he couldn't go on. You know, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of complexities to it. It seems that the, Factors that lead to first stages of life are so much harder to attain than the ones that lead to lower realms. Is it is it is it right that um, in the deva realms it's much easier to access the first levels of enlightenment? It, it is. It, if you do the practice, yeah, I, one of the things I loved at the end of one of the seeds books, it's just it's one of my favorite passages. <laughs> he talks about how people who have practiced in this life but who don't necessarily reach any stages are often well for a whole series of headlines. <laughs> and he said <laughs> it's quite cute. He said that usually they'll spend just a lot of time playing meeting new friends there. <laughs> but, but at a certain point they remember their past practice and at that point it's usually quite easy to get them because first of all the body is very light and nice and then the mind is very keen to so that's the easy ones for me but there has to be a background in practice what is, if there isn't Custody's background practice years and years of monastic no, I think daily sitting. <laughs> <laughs> if you sit every day, then it's <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's that bargaining. Do you get some points for being on staff? <laughs> 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 uh, lots of points. <coughs> In all seriousness, mm -hmm. that's, that's Susan's. Oh, they, it's really simple in, in terms of the development of wholesome <coughs> states and wholesome consequences. It really has to do with dynasty development. It has to do with every act of generosity, every act of restraint of morality, and every act of meditative development is is just creating more and more wholesome wholesome content, with, which brings wholesome results. There's one other interesting twist to karma, which is, I mean, we've all, we've all, you know, accumulated a lot, but, I mean, obviously we are enjoying fruits of tremendously good karma, given, I mean, just given the real situation, it's, it's amazing. And that when we are current, when the mind is 
in a wholesome state, it actually attracts past wholesome actions to bear fruit. And when the mind is in unwholesome states, it attracts past unwholesome actions to bear fruit. And this isn't an absolute, it doesn't mean that no unwholesome things will come when the mind is wholesome. But it's a kind of protection. And that's been my experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, when I spent a lot of time hitchhiking, and I was fairly young, but I was very, and I didn't know anything about Buddhism, but I was very aware of that, and I called it being in a state of grace. And I knew what I needed to do in my mind to keep it happening was to keep very pure mind state. And it really worked. Do you still hitchhike? No. When you were saying that weighty karma is our states of concentration and reaching any of the stages of so it makes me wonder about people who live lives of service, who are not necessarily meditators, but who really do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you can think of both mm-hmm. famous people, and you know, there's lots of people you never hear about who basically do their own thing. How does that fit? I mean, is that that's, that's like, like habitual karma. That's one. habitual, but yeah. but the other so the waiting. I mean, the con- states of concentration and states of enlightenment are more yeah. important than living a life of service and compassion. They they have yeah. It, it's more powerful. But it, I mean, obviously, the life of service is tremendously wholesome. And it's said that, for example, that the king of the heaven realm, of one particular heaven realm, got that post as a result of just the kind of life you described. It was a life of service. So the karmic fruit of that was, but see the, the the fruit of generosity is rebirth in the sensual sphere, but of, of pleasant, you know, either in the either as a human being or in heaven else. Whereas the, the weighty karma of jhana or of the stages of enlightenment goes beyond the sensual sphere either to the drama realms or actually to freedom. And that's why it's that's why they're really good. You know, another interesting thing about I mean there's quite a lot of emphasis on the stages of mind because because of it being waiting. And the understanding that the practice leads to that, whether it leads to it in this life or the next life. That's the that's the direction it's going. But even the technical word for the first stage is sotapanna, which means stream enter. 
there's a stage called Chula Sotopan, which means little street into it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's actually the stage in the whole progress of insight. There's a stage called the stage of arising and passing away, where you're just seeing the momentary rising and vanishing of phenomena very, very clearly. And when people reach that stage, it's likened to somebody holding their arm up. And you know that it's destined that it's going to come down. You, know, you may take one more, you may take one shorter, but it's going to happen. And so there's, even from that stage of chula sotapana, it's like in this You know, and that's not the, that stage, the first stage of stream or even the second stage, are not things that are out of our reach. It's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's another nice image. <laughs> but I, I have to put it's slightly sexist. Can you bear it? Or shall I refrain from <laughs> Can you can you fix it? Okay, I'll fix it. Let's have it the have way it, it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it talks about a herd of cattle crossing the stream, and the big bull of the herd crosses without any problem. It's just strong. That's like a mountain. And then big mother cow crosses and there's no time. It's like the animal. That's the third stage of mining where somebody's uprooted desire and anger. And then there's the two-year-old cow. And then that's like the second stage of mining. They don't have much power. And then there's the yearling which is like the Sotapanna. They get to the other side, but it's a little bit, takes some work. And then they say, the calf, the, the newborn calf, which gets to the other side simply by following the lowering of its mother. And just by following the sound, it also will get to the other side. And that's likened to somebody who just has strong faith in the dark. And that faith leads me. And so there is, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about the lower realms and a lot, but there's a lot in the Dhamma that to me is tremendously inspiring this positive way. But the forces, the forces of purity in the mind, are very powerful. In fact, it's where the Nibbana can uproot the finance, but the finance can't uproot the Nibbana. When you get right down to the bottom line, it's where the purity which has the
things until we reach <laughs> But the violence are pretty strong. <laughs> First thing that was that was completely transformed, I mean, just totally transformed my life, was that, that deep, that eradication of the view of self, and it just everything got turned, just got turned inside out. Because it was going along, going along. And everything was revolving around a sense of life. And there was an experience which was just, just totally uprooted that belief. And so then it was like, there's still a lot of remaining stuff, you know, an awful lot. But the basic, the foundation of it doesn't exist. And the, the, the next problem has been, and this has really been in recent years, for the first, I don't know, 10 years of my practice or so, selflessness was really the, what I saw most clearly, and was the emptiness of it. And it's, only, it's been in the last few years that I've started experiencing things from the viewpoint of Dukkha. And just experiencing the Dukkha of conditioned existence. So it's been really what we call a life. See, I think that we have, that, that the mind creates romantic notions or sentimental notions about existence. 
and that we live in this romantic view of things. And what I've experienced in the practice, as you say, in these last years, is just, you know, it's just sitting and being with experience, and the experience is just <laughs> this relentless arising and passing away of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and the relentlessness of it, and the ceasing of it, you really begin to see as dukkha, and that the ending of it is this really, I mean, it's just, and the example that I've used before is you know, like being in the room with the refrigerator, and then all of a sudden it goes off. And you don't realize how much, how much suffering it was until it goes off. And that, so it's, that's just becoming more clear. the Sudhi Mandir thing. <laughs> There's a lot, I mean, there is just so much. You know. That's what's so beautiful about it. Should we sit for two minutes? <laughs> 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 we could do a live. <laughs>